Dundeal has the largest range of electric vehicles in Ireland from Ireland's trusted premium car dealerships. That's why you will find MSL Park Motors Skoda on Dundeal. Stop by MSL Park Motors Skoda showroom on Dundeal today and connect with them for great deals on electric vehicles. Dundeal, for electric vehicle deals to feel great about from all of Ireland's trusted car dealerships. The Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be speaking to the brilliant Naomi Oreskes, who spent years researching the sort of science undertaken by American military to understand our oceans and how it really is the basis of, of nearly everything we know about our blue planet. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and here to discuss What's been going on is uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jasmine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story. The Transformers. Jasmine has to do with these things uh, called xenobots, which every time we, we, we talk about them on the program, it seems to be at least yearly, they, they improve in complexity and abilities. Yeah, they're a very interesting form of not really life, but they are made from living cells. Um, they're made from the cells of the African frog, Xenopus lavis, hence the name xenobots, as I would say them. Um, and they're basically combinations of skin and heart stem cells. And the layout of these cells is designed by an evolutionary algorithm that basically tests them in different virtual environments to see what's the optimal layout of these cells to be able to do things like walk or swim in a kind of fluid environment. Um, the heart cells in them have this expansion and contraction, you know, as, as we would hope for most hearts. Um, and that's what gives this, the xenobots their energy to do these kind of walking, swimming, basic, basic me- mechanical tasks. Um, and what's really interesting, this kind of new research coming out of uh, Harvard, Tufts, and the University of Vermont, is that not only can they do these basic mechanical tasks, as we had seen previously, but they can actually replicate themselves if you put materials for them around the xenobots. So if you have like other sort of stem cells just kind of around in the general vicinity, they'll gather them up and they'll make another xenobot. Um, there are videos of this that the research team has provided, and if I could describe it, I would say it looks like a little Pac-Man that's just sort of spinning, and eventually it barfs another Pac-Man out of its mouth. Nice. So <laughs> if you're worried good, good about the robot apocalypse, maybe be a little bit less worried now, because it's, it's a relatively simple process. Um, and it is, it's really interesting because as the researchers have pointed out, I mean, it's one of the first um, robots made from living cells. Uh, it has a lot of potential applications in terms of like cleanup, um, in terms of being able to perform tasks, again, at a very small scale um, in various environments. But to me, like looking at this, uh, I, I found a few issues with the research that I hope that they address in, in future iterations. One is that basically the cells only have about 10 days of energy built up in them. So the, the xenobots uh, will cease to function after 10 days, which, again, kind of good news in terms of averting a robot apocalypse. Um, but I also think the only reason that they're really able to reproduce themselves, which sounds very exciting, uh, is because their shape is so simple. And so, you know, making them able to do more complex tasks, I mean, that's the definition of a robot is something that's able to do something complex. Um, I think that's going to make it harder for them to do this self-replication mm. trick. And also at the moment, the way that these xenobots are put together from these cells is they're basically hand assembled. You know, the researchers themselves are using like tweezers and cauterizing tools to put the, the cells together into a clump. 
um, that's not a super scalable process. So, yeah. you know, even if they can self-replicate, we're not going to see, you know, masses of Xenobots available in tubs at the grocery store anytime soon. So I was wrong to be impressed is what you're saying. Well, sure. it's impressive, but which I okay. think is most science news stories. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, Shane, there, there is a problem when you go to space, and that is that um, it sort of messes with your vision. And to sort of address this, um, <laughs> researchers have come up with a vacuum sleeping bag. Please explain. Yeah, um, I, I feel I'm going to put my reviewer hat on here like Chessman did as well. Maybe the show could now become part of the peer review process where journalists sure. would send us their work and, you know, authors would have to go back and address the issues that we, we come up with. That, that could be helpful. Um, but to this story, 70% of people who go into space experience eyeball bulging, which isn't good because it distorts your vision. And like what happens down on Earth is that when we lie down, um, there th- that buildup that happens during the day is relieved. So when you lie down, there's a threefold increase in your skull pressure. Uh, sounds great. And, oh. and that, that helps regulate all of the different fluids in your body. And so it takes pressure off. And there's a sort of an equilibrium that happens when you lie down. And gravity helps there as well. So is, that anything, so is that anything to do with why we have bags or seemingly bags under our eyes when we have not slept for a while? I do not know that. Uh, I would what am I doing? It. I'm asking a physicist. You barely know what a body is. Okay. Yes, you <laughs> so the body can be described as a sphere. No. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so what they do in space at the moment is they ask astronauts to wear contacts. And that works. It's fine, right? Because like virtually every astronaut that goes into space is in a low Earth orbit. So they're in a microgravity situation. They wear these contacts. It's fine. Well, but that's not good enough for uh, people in Southwestern Medical Center in Texas, because they're deeply concerned about uh, long distance space travel and what will happen to the astronauts' eyeballs. And so they've invested millions in coming up with a sleeping bag that covers half of the body, the lower half. And when you Wait, get into it... The lower half? Yes, the lower half. Well, you, you, I thought well, it was a hear- sleeping bag for the upper half. When you hear about what's going to do, you won't want that. So uh, you get into it and there's there's a suction, right? So it's it's like getting into it and then you're like, you're vacuum packed, right? So uh, yeah, that probably would result in asphyxiation if you put it over the uh, the top half. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, so this mimics uh, <laughs> what it's like to be down on earth in terms of the uh, equilibrium of pressures. And what they did to test that was they uh, took volunteers and they asked them to lie down for 72 hours. So they convinced 10 people to do this, which is incredible. And they had to lie still for 10 hours and they used a CAT scan to look at changes in their eyeballs. And that mimics the, the environment in space. And then they did it again with the, with the bag. And they were able to look at the difference of having this, this, this bag. And they showed that there was a, 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 a dramatic um, difference between the two scenarios. What I think is most incredible here is that they convinced 10 people to go through two periods of lying down still for 72 hours in order to demonstrate the effectiveness of something that will most likely never be used. Yeah. It also um, <laughs> seems rather bulky solution uh, to compared to contacts. Contacts weighing less than a gram and the sleeping bag by the looks of it. Um, quite a hefty thing to be looking around space for the similar sort of effect. And noisy. It's it's a vacuum. So like who wants to go to sleep in a Hoover? <laughs> Moving very swiftly on. Um, our third story, Chessamine, has to do with fish. 
Yeah, this is a nice story, uh, and it's about what whoops, croaks, growls, raspberries, and foghorns have in common, um, which is that they're all types of fish song that have been observed in a coral leaf reef that was being rebuilt. So coral reefs, as we all know, they're basically this whole underwater ecosystem, right? They're, they've been called the rainforests of the sea. They contain 25% of all marine species, but sadly they have been in decline um, by about 50% worldwide since 1950 due to rising temperatures, ocean acidification, overfishing, things like that. So a lot of people are looking at how to restore coral reefs. Um, but this is hard when it's a whole bunch of species, a whole bunch of interlocking ecological pieces. Um, so this is really cool research coming out of the universities of Exeter and Bristol, where basically they had been part of this Mars Coral Reef Restoration Project, which is not restoring coral reefs on Mars, um, but restoring them in Indonesia. Uh, and they have been using these metal frames that they call reef stars, which are basically seeded with coral that then starts to sort of regrow um, its little calcium carbonate skeletons in the sea. And what they wanted to know was, if we're regrowing this coral, are we also getting all these fish and other species coming back in right. to recreate that ecosystem? So they use sound monitoring, and they found not only that fish and other species do come back to these sort of newly reseeded coral reefs, um, but also they observed a bunch of new fish sounds and fish songs that had never been heard before. Um, which I think is really cool. It wasn't exactly the same kind of sound landscape as a never destroyed coral reef, but it was similarly diverse. So the hope is that, you know, if we can use this uh, coral reseeding process in more of the reefs that have been threatened or even fully bleached and destroyed, um, that we would regain not only the coral itself, you know, which has a lot of important ecological functions like protecting shorelines, um, but also the full range of ecological diversity in the coral reefs, which is really exciting research. Uh, two questions for you. The first is, does it look anywhere near as pretty as natural coral or are we talking about like coat hangers with crystals on it? Well, it does eventually, right? It, it starts out as very much like coat hangers with crystals on it. Um, but then, you know, the coral does its thing and it grows and you also get the zooxanthellae that come into the coral and cause all of the different colors and are like kind of the energy source for the coral. So, you know, much like reseeding a forest, right? When you first put the new trees in, it's a little bit sad. Um, but then when you give enough time for the trees to grow up and all the other species to come in, it starts to look like the forest that it once was. Okay. And then the second question is, how quickly does this process take place? It sounds like um, not something you would um, be able to mass produce, or, or is this something we could put in the oceans of, or particularly off the coast of, of Australia quickly and, and get back that coral that has left? I mean, the potentially this could be rolled out on a very large scale. I think the only thing that's slow is getting all the little seed corals um, in place. And then, you know, just the time that you need for the coral to rebuild itself, right? So, you know, rebuilding something that we've destroyed in nature is never a like snap your fingers sort of process. Um, but it's definitely something that we could start on. And the sooner we start, the sooner we'll get to the end. Uh, our final story, Shane, is, is a good one. It's, uh, it's, again, another story to do with sleeping. Yeah, uh, about this uh, state we enter when we just nod off uh, called N1 or hypnagogia. We're going to call it N1 for the rest of the story. Um, and it's something that Edison, uh, Thomas Edison, the great inventor, used because he realized that when he was in this sort of half sleep state and if he woke up suddenly, he, he was very creative. He was able to solve problems that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to solve. Really? Uh, Salvador Dali used it too. Now, what Edison did was is he'd, he'd sit in a chair, he'd nod off. And he'd hold two steel balls in his hands. And when he nod off, his hands would fall and um, it would make a, a loud clatter and he'd wake up. So he disturbed his sleep. Um, that sounds like hell to me. Being woken Is that up real? Is that a real story? How have I not heard that? That's a well, great well, story. 
But I, I all I can give you is the uh, assurance of the publisher that wrote it. But uh, I, I'm afraid I wasn't there, so I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. But um, there, there must be something in it because researchers in Paris, uh, led by Delphine Odette, have decided to kind of pick up on this, and they're using this N1 state for people to solve maths problems. Uh, and see, can they be more creative in that space? So they took wow. a hun- 103 people, right? Um, and uh, they said, right, we'd like you to do a maths challenge. They gave them an eight-digit number uh, sequence, and they had to man- manipulate it using two functions to arrive at an answer. But there is a shortcut that you can do uh, to solve this problem if you want to be creative. So they uh, looked to see what they could do. They gave them a 20-minute break then, and they asked them to uh, go for a sleep and in the most sleep inducing uh, space you can imagine. So they were wired up with electrodes and they were asked <laughs> to hold two bottles in their hands. So they were mimicking that famous Edison setup minus the electrodes. Um, 24 people remarkably managed to go into this N1 steep sleep state. I'd never sleep in this situation. Wow, no, me neither. 14 went further into deep sleep and the rest of those normal people did not sleep at all, terrified that they were wired up. So then after that 20 minute nap, everyone had to redo a maths problem. And they found that of those who went into the N1 state, but didn't go further, right? They were far more likely to be able to solve the problem than those who either went into deep sleep or those who did not sleep at all. Huh. Is the only response I have for that. So to induce creativity, we might um, wake ourselves up just as we're falling asleep. What, wait, but that, that, uh, that's is, kind is of theoretical proposition here. Yeah, the educator in me would say there's far, far better things you can do to encourage people to be creative. Um, and you don't need to torture them by getting them to wake up continuously when they're asleep. Do you like any science anymore, Shane? I love science. I don't like this sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't see the point in this type of thing, to be honest with you. Like, we know that uh, there's so many things you can do to encourage people to be creative. But I don't like this sort of excessive scientism as a way to solve these problems. This no, is, this... and I've fallen for the trap a bit, um, Shane, by going, oh, this looks like an interesting story in that it gets attention because it's a bit wacky, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's fun. All right. Uh, uh, thanks very much, Dr. Shane Berger from UCD and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jasmine Fairfield. On the way, what the military has taught us about our oceans. Now, how much does funding affect the course of scientific discovery? As much as we may not like to admit it, science does not happen in a vacuum. And the source of this funding through which science takes place can have a massive impact, not just on the course of research, but the long-term outcomes for us all. Naomi Oreskes is a historian of science and author of a new book, Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. She joins me now to discuss. Um, Welcome to the program, Naomi. The U.S. military has been responsible for so many innovations uh, which have changed our lives completely, many of which um, listeners may be completely unaware that this is where they started. Certainly in medicine, this is a a really serious field that, that they've contributed to. But talk to me about marine science. This is not something I was very familiar with. Right. Well, thank you for that. It's a pleasure to be back with you today. So the book is not an attack on the military. I just want to start by saying that the military has done many excellent things and funded a a large amount of high quality research, including in marine science. But because so much of marine science in the 20th century, particularly in the United States, was funded by the military and not just the military broadly, but actually one particular branch of the military, which was to say the U.S. Navy, 
it offered an opportunity for an investigation of what impact that focused funding had had. And what I argue in the book is that it would be really naive to think that that had no effect um, and that when scientists say, oh, it doesn't matter who pays for our work, that that's not a credible position, but that in fact, we should be interrogating that. And what we can see in the case of military funding of oceanographic and other marine sciences is that it had a very significant effect on what was studied and what was ignored or pushed to a back burner. And so my argument is that military funding of oceanographic research produced a great deal of useful, valuable, and profound knowledge about the ocean, but it also produced significant areas of ignorance. So um, maybe you might clarify something for me. I, I know, obviously, some research is, is classified, but from what you know, how much research on the oceans was done simply to understand the oceans better? Or is anything that is military <laughs> dollar always intended to either improve defense or attack? I think it would be fair to say that nothing that the U.S. Navy funded was science for science's sake. That is to say, none of it was funded simply because of a curiosity or desire, a kind of emotional or intellectual desire to understand the natural world. Right. And that's not a criticism of the Navy. I want to be really clear about that. The Navy had a job to do. Its job was to defend the United States against foreign enemies. Um, and to do that, it needed to understand the medium in which it operated. And that medium increasingly in the 20th century was the deep sea. And so a whole area of scientific investigation, an area that scientists had been curious about since the ancient Romans, Greeks, and Egyptians, but had not had the logistical means to study, had not had the financial support. Deep ocean research is extremely expensive and logistically difficult. So the Navy's interest in the ocean made it possible for scientists to answer genuine scientific questions that were genuine objects of scientific curiosity, but that was not the Navy's motivation. And so part of the question mm. then is, you have these um, different motivations. I, t I call this the context of motivation. The Navy is motivated by its need to operate in the marine environment. Scientists are motivated by their desire to understand the natural world, and also, in many cases, in my story, the desire to contribute to national defense. That was a significant motivation for many of these scientists. And so the question is, how do those motivations mesh? And my argument is that in many cases, they mesh quite well. And we see scientists collaborating with military officers in a pretty friendly and compatible, congenial way. But we also see conflict. And of course, Historians, well, we're all interested in conflict, right? Because conflict is where interesting stuff gets exposed. So what period are we talking about um, that you look at in the, in the book? And tell me about some of the research that was undertaken by the Navy at that time. Well, the book starts in the 1930s because that's when we begin to see the beginnings of change. So as I said, oceanographers had always been interested in the deep ocean, scientists had been interested in the deep ocean. Marine biologists had been very interested in the question of whether there was life in the deep sea, but they really hadn't had the means to answer those questions. That begins to change in the 1930s, particularly in the mid to late 1930s, when the U.S. armed services begin to anticipate that the United States will likely enter into the conflict of Europe. So well before the United States actually enters the European theater, military officials think it's highly likely that we will. 
And so they begin to think harder about what their role will be, and particularly the role of submarine warfare. Because in World War I, for the first time, U-boats began to be a significant factor. But those submarines had not actually been able to dive deep. They were submerged, but they weren't really uh, deep. They were pretty much just operating relatively just a little bit below the surface. But submarine technology was improving. The U.S. and other navies were beginning to realize that deep, uh, and I hate the word penetration. That's a very, it's a word that's used a lot in military terms, but we'll use it here for lack of a better word. Deep penetration of the deeper portions of the ocean were going to become important. And if they were going to operate successfully, they would need to understand the ocean. They would need to understand currents, which could influence how submarines traveled. They would need to understand the possibilities of uh, underwater communications since electromagnetic waves don't travel through water, so you couldn't use conventional radio for, for navigation and communication. And especially, they would need to understand, um, well, sonar was going to be the main way of communicating sound, and you could use sonar to detect enemy submarines, and enemies could use sonar to detect you. And so they badly needed to understand how sonar would be transmitted in the marine environment in order to uh, escape detection by the enemy or detect the enemy. And it turned out that the sonar transmissions are very sensitive to the temperature, the pressure, and the salinity of the seawater. So these basic facts about the ocean, how cold it was, how dense it was, how salty it was, turned out to be absolutely crucial for naval operations. And when the U.S. Navy realizes that, they realize that they need to understand the ocean much more deeply. Sorry for the pun. It's impossible to avoid uh, depth puns and metaphors. What <laughs> about the ocean? Dredging, diving, you know, diving in deep. So they begin to fund oceanographic research, uh, first to a small extent, but then by the late 1930s, early 1940s, to a very great extent. And by 1945, the U.S. Navy becomes the principal patron of oceanographic research in the United States. Now, during this time, they must have made a slew of discoveries um, just by chance because they are exploring completely new waters. I can see what you mean by <laughs> the, <laughs> the bone thing. I just fell right into that one. Um, <laughs> so uh, was this science, this understanding of the oceans in terms of currents, in terms of animals, for example, you know, uh, the, the deep sea animals we now see on um, documentaries, they must have come across many of those, including squid and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, did any of that um, unsensitive, unmilitary, useful information make it out into the, to the public? Did they publicly publish papers about that sort of thing that would have helped our understanding of the world? Well, it's a mix, but in general, no. Most of the research that I talk about in this book was secret. It was classified, and one of the challenges that scientists faced was how to do work under conditions of secrecy. And so they did find ways to operate. Uh, they were able to discuss their work with other scientists who also had military clearances. Um, in some cases, and this has been written about a lot in other areas of science like physics um, and acoustics, there were actually secret journals, classified journals, that if you had military clearance, you could read. But if you didn't, you couldn't. So scientists found ways to do their work, but it also impeded their work in a number of important ways. And I would say there's two that I discuss in the book. So the first is it actually made it hard to talk to fellow scientists about the work 
if those scientists didn't also have clearance. And so in the book, I discuss an episode that's related to the development of plate tectonic theory, the most important theory of the earth probably ever developed, in which a group of marine scientists, geophysicists, are encountering phenomena in the deep sea that they don't know how to interpret. They don't understand what they're seeing because they have no geological training. Their training is in physics. And so they have the idea that they should reach out to colleagues in the geology department in their own university to enlist these geologists to help them interpret the data. And the Navy won't let them. The Navy says the geologists don't have a need to know this. And the scientists actually write to the Navy So I was able to find letters in which scientists are complaining about this. And they say, we can't do our work because we need to talk to other people about it. And the Navy says, too bad. So that's Mm. one clear example where secrecy impedes the development of scientific knowledge. But the other area, which is more directly pertinent to your question, is about how it impedes public understanding of science. And so the book ends with an episode in which scientists at the end of the Cold War are trying to evolve their research to work on non-military problems. And the big non-military problem they want to get involved in is climate change. And this is in the 1990s, so just after the end of the Cold War. And they have a very clever idea to take military hardware that was developed for submarine detection and to apply it to the problem of climate change by using it to measure the temperature of the ocean and to see if the oceans are indeed warming up as climate change predicts they will be. The project goes bust because when it becomes public, there is huge public opposition. And the reason is because the sound waves that the scientists are proposing to use have the potential to interfere with whale communication and Mm. possibly to hurt species of endangered whales and other marine mammals, which is both illegal, according to U.S. law, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and also just not good. And so there's a huge public upcry or outcry, uproar and outcry. And and so one of the questions that comes up for me in the book is, well, these scientists were very intelligent people. Why did it not occur to them that this could be a problem? Hmm. And so in the book, I argue two things. So yes, as you said, these scientists, of course, came across marine life in the ocean. They knew there were whales in the ocean and sea lions and squid and fish and all kinds of other animals, many of whom are sensitive to sound. We know a lot about whale communication, but it turns out many, many species of marine organisms, including fish, are sensitive to sound. They knew this, but they'd never really paid attention to it. It wasn't central to what I call the mission or what they call the mission, Hmm. which is where the title of the book comes from. They have a mission. That mission is defined by the U.S. Navy. And so things that are not central to that mission, it's not that they are not aware of them, but it's that they're brushed aside as not consequential. And so when this project comes up, there's a really big question about how these sound transmissions will affect marine mammals. These are sound transmissions that the U.S. Navy has been using for, I would say, let's see, from the 30s to the 90s, so nearly 60 years, and yet they have no good information on their impact on marine mammals. So this tells you something very important. They're doing all this work, and they are not paying attention to things that later many of us would say, wow, those were really important things and you paid no attention to that? Yes. Then there's one other piece though also has to do with the issue of trust in science, which of course, as some of your listeners may know, is my other really big interest in this area. So what comes out is that the public does not trust these scientists. And so when the scientists say, don't worry, this will be fine, 
many members of the public, including other scientists, cetacean biologists say, well, why should we trust you? You've been doing all this work in secret for all these years. We don't really actually have a basis to trust you. So there's sort of two consequences. There's an epistemic consequence about what is actually known or not known about the ocean. And then there's a kind of social and personal consequence that these scientists are not viewed as trustworthy. Um, I'd love to get an idea from you about the declassification process because, I mean, apart from those sonar tests that you're talking about, we know that the U.S. military uh, also performed a number of um, marine tests of, of various weapons. When do you think we will ever learn the true toll of military science during that that period, particularly the, the nuclear period, because because so many so much of that information is classified? Um, when will we know how much damage was done to, to wildlife and ecosystems for the advancement of American supremacy? That's a very difficult question. And I think the answer is we may never know. Um, in the book, I quote the great sociologist Edward Schills, who wrote a famous book many years ago called The Torment of Secrecy. And one of the arguments he makes in that book is that one of the problems of secrecy is that you don't know what you don't know, and you may never know it because you don't even know what questions to ask. Now, I think we know quite a bit now about the impacts of uh, U.S. activities, not just in the ocean, but also in the Arctic, the Antarctic, other places, because many scholars have really done hard, serious work on this question. So increasingly, there is a body of knowledge that I see my work contributing to, but it's very difficult work. I mean, many people, if they, I mean, I have the book right here, so shameless plug, here it is. You should buy it, but I have to warn you, it's a big book. <laughs> it's a yeah. deep book. Um, it took a long time to write. And one of the reasons it took a long time is because this is very difficult work. Getting materials declassified can sometimes take years. Fortunately, I was tenured when I started this project, and I had some other things I was also working on at the same time. So it didn't hurt me that I had to wait a long time to get these documents I was also extremely lucky because I was working at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where a number of colleagues were really helpful and supportive in telling me what to look for, to tell me there were projects about X and Y. You should see if you can find out. And the super piece of luck for me, maybe it wasn't entirely luck, but a colleague told me that at the Marine Physical Laboratory at Point Loma, which is a major Navy military base in San Diego, there were um, reports that gave the titles of classified reports. So I was able to read through these books and see what people had worked on. And then knowing the titles of the report, I could file freedom of information requests right. to get those reports. So that was just a very fortunate thing that happened to me that, you know, if that hadn't happened, it would have been much more difficult to write this book. But if that's the kind of work you have to do. It's hard work. It requires tremendous patience. And you have to be a senior scholar so you can afford to wait Fortunately, I had all those things in place. Well, um, it's a really interesting book, and, and I'm really interested in the, America's role in, in, in science historically, and particularly the, the military funding I find really fascinating. We actually did a deep dive into what we know about um, DARPA-funded research, and that'll be our podcast um, next Tuesday if you're interested. Uh, but for the moment, the book is called Science on a Mission, how military funding shaped what we do and don't know about the ocean at Naomi Oreskes. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
it, it is, uh, I suppose, a really awful legacy, isn't it? In some ways, obviously, Naomi um, was keen to stress this. You know, this book is not anti-military, but like when you do look at, you know, one country's military efforts and 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 the damage that they have done. Um, not just in a political or social way in, in the various countries that America's involved involved in conflicts, but but specifically in um, weapons testing and that sort of thing. You know, exploration space or not necessarily space exploration, but um, deep sea exploration. Where you know that that story of of the years and years of doing sonar tests that could have been damaging to whales and other cetapods. Like it's, it you know. You, you begin to wonder, like, when you look back at that century, you might just, you know, do you mind? it's just a very, it's a it's an awful black cloud over, over a single country. Aiden, producer of our program, joins us to discuss. I mean, I said, Aiden, that we're, we're going to hear um, in the next podcast about, you know, DARPA and the sort of research that they did. But, like, it's hard to get away from the military in the United States, the reputation it has, what it, what it has done you know, in, in, in conflict, but also the the things it has done in, in the name of research. It's pretty terrifying in a way. Yeah, well, even the stuff that was, like when we've covered DARPA before, the stuff that was kind of uh, ostensibly ha- were good things, maybe like, you know, the, the role in the invention of the internet or whatever, they still always had quite a sinister undertone <laughs> as to why they were developing these these kind of new technologies. Um, so I guess it's, it's not that surprising that kind of they're, they're a little morally compromised on this front as well. I mean, if you're willing to uh, kill a lot of humans, it's probably no surprise that you're willing to kill a lot of cephalopods and whales and things. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, absolutely. And it was interesting, Naomi's comment that I said, I, you know, if you remember, I said, do you think any research was done for research sake or is all research done by these defense agencies at the at the aim of attack or defense and and you know her answer was you know pretty much that's that's the sole purpose of any of the research so you don't get funded you know by these agencies unless there's a defense or attack and defense in america is often another form of attack um it, it is it is really really worrying how much time effort funding um and and just manpower has been put into trying to kill others uh, i wonder and, and is there a... the other the other side of it though is that there's as naomi said there's all of this good research that could have helped us understand the world but they didn't share it because it's classified um, and it was because it was the fruits of, you know, trying to research weapons or submarines or some shit, you know? Yeah, like I wonder is there a conflict there if you are an American scientist as well where you're thinking to yourself, I've got this great idea which could be of great benefit to humanity but can I in my pitch finagle some sort of defense role into it? Like I'm thinking of things like, there's lots of things obviously we've talked before about like, you know, GPS has lots of great uh, applications for us for civilians and so yeah. does obviously the internet uh, if you've come up with something like that you have to kind of go can i phrase this in such a way that they'll also be interested in it what like an, a reverse oppenheimer approach that seems like a strange thing to do just to get money like you you come up with a really good use for something and then you say <laughs> oh by the way you can fund this because you can also use it to kill dudes i'm, I'm not sure that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. but i mean like if, you know if you're really frustrated and you can't get your your 
your ray gun, um, yeah, your which, ray gun which, which, which is great for mutating genes and uh, exploring you, which can also be used to kill dudes. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I'm, I am thinking of more subtle things like maybe you know, tracking technology, yeah, communication, or something. <laughs> yeah. infrared, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, isn't it awful in a way that as children, through mass media and through play, we have hardwired in to most children still today the idea that guns are cool and and you know tanks are cool and bombs are cool and just weapons are cool and war is like it's it's really when you think about it it's probably the one of the worst things we've done to our children that hasn't you know that hasn't been looked back by psychologists on what were we thinking you know sort of hardwiring our children for for war I mean, my kids these um, right this moment. My kids are upstairs playing with, you know, with soldiers and 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 feigning all sorts of intricate and I have to give it to them quite creative ways of killing and torturing uh, uh, other people. That like that's their play. It's 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 something we probably I should have been more active in maybe trying to veer them away from that. It's tr- it's strange that you should actually mention that because. Only the other week, um, uh, I probably mentioned on the podcast before, I'm an ardent pacifist, never raised my fist in anger as an adult in my entire life. But uh, a video surfaced there from one of my friends a couple of weeks back, taken when my him and me were four. And in this video, everyone had a good laugh at this for the pacifist. Uh, a four-year-old me with chocolate all over his face has a toy machine gun pressed against his head and made that noise, you know, the brrrr, and I'm yeah. just shooting myself in the back like some sort of um, satanic horror movie kid, <laughs> shooting myself in the head with this play toy machine gun. Um, so, yeah, I, we were running around with machine guns, but um, thankfully it hasn't. I've never hit anybody in my life. I've wanted to hit people. I've wanted to hit you, but of I've course. never actually hit anybody in my life. Um and uh, I think it's, you know, I just I just don't see the, I mean, like, I don't see the point of it. But, yeah, it just it's, it was just something I never really considered. Actually, do what I, would I actually punch that person in the face? What, what you know, what would what good would come from that? But wouldn't that hurt them? That's often the sort of stuff that would come out of my head. Like, wouldn't that hurt if I hit them? But did uh, you like toy toy guns when you were a kid? Yeah. Like, yeah. I loved all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I mean, strange, I used to make like. Uh, you know, this is a real boy thing. I used to go out in the woods and like make shivs and, and like almost like, you know, those uh, kids games that you can get, the tower defense games where you start off with like a tiny village, but you can, like, if you keep working at it, you can build, you know, a huge castle and f- with fortify. I started off, you know, just making like, you know, sh- s- spiky sticks, like sharp sticks. And then I, I got better at tooling them and I made sort of daggers and then I, and then I, and then I, um, and then I managed You're scaring to get, me. <laughs> I managed to get some glass then, like some shards of glass, and I tied them together with duct tape. And then I had like a, a more, like a more serious, and I had this collection of like sort of uh, homemade stabbing devices that were put to no use, but I just thought it was kind of cool to have them. So by the way, if you are a parent of a child who, who is collecting knives in this way, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use them. But yeah, no, that was... That was Your kid's going to be a radio host. <laughs> Well, my, exactly. Your child's going to be um, a, a radio host. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Our obsession with war and death—that is, you know, like look at DoD defense budget. We talk about it all the time. You know, one percent would probably save the world, and yet ninety-nine percent of it is is aimed at 
threatening or saving America from so-called perceived threats. I don't know. Do you do you buy all that? I know we're going on a bit here. If you Not want to end the podcast here, you can. But do you buy that America is constantly under huge threat and it needs to buy these amazing airplanes and so on? Like, no, not for a second. Like, not like even the like you know I. I the Chinese government are authoritarian. They've done lots of things that are terrible, and um, that's that that record is there. But the whole like it seems to me like the whole like America versus China thing, like they kind of engineered that themselves. They need to have a boogeyman. Mm. Before China it was uh, Muslim terrorists. Before Muslim terrorists it was the Russians. Yeah. Before the Russians it was the Germans. And before and you know it just goes the whole way back. And it's I think it's part of the whole scheme. And it also, even within, with the China context, makes no sense because America spends more than half the, or sorry, more than double the budget of all of the next nine countries in a row put together. And on top of all that, when you have nuclear weapons, like the game's over. It's yeah. like you don't need any more yeah. like, deterrent. You don't need you have the this new one. Goes, yeah. Yeah. If somebody attacks you, like you just go, look, you can attack me if you want, but I've got this. <laughs> so, and, and, you, and, and you know, you have to think with all of the killing machines that, that is developed and that, that are paid for, and you think about one single missile, how much, you'd think, couldn't that be better spent in completely dearming your enemy? Like if, if you were to spend, instead of those trillions of dollars that have been spent over the past number of years, instead of spending them on that, could you not instead perhaps um, spend your research in ways of completely and utterly disabling your your enemy so that no one gets killed like is that not a is that not a, a a way cheaper and much more useful way of um spending defense dollars so like i'm talking about like obviously in you know extreme hacking um you know uh using satellites to dis- disable um certain types of machines um ways of of non-lethally incapacitating people with drones you know like it just seems to me they spend a lot of money on making sure they make a really big hole in the ground when they drop a very expensive bomb. Yeah, it'd be great if they could put a load of money into like a nuclear weapons neutralizer. You just press it and it disables every nuclear weapon in the world. That's what I want them to do. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, and let's leave now and watch Dr. Strangelove um, and tut-tut at how prescient it was. Um, that's it from us uh Oh, wait, we forgot to go into the... Oh, God, we've been here for a while, haven't we? Sorry. Yeah. This is a long pod. Um, let's have a look at some of your comments from last week. How rude of us. Um, we were uh, talking about the science of stickiness with the brilliant uh, Laurie Winkless, an Irish uh, science writer. Fantastic book. And someone says, wouldn't the coefficient of friction be involved in stickiness? I know, Aidan. That sounds about right, doesn't it? I, I yeah, I, t- I think Laurie said... I know. Well, the problem is, uh, as Laurie said, there there is no such thing, or not that there's no such thing, but there's no specific definition of stickiness. It's like friction is one of the things that we think of as stickiness. Yeah. So yes, it's not the same be. though. It's not it's friction isn't the same as stickiness. No. Um, another says, can you explain how wet breaks work? <clears throat> um, wet breaks are just hydraulic breaks, aren't they? <laughs> you, you know better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because I just googled it. And now I sounded, I just threw it off like I knew what I was talking about. And someone says, yes, oh, we, oh, Laurie was talking about how the grooves in the in the tire work to sort of suck up the water as they roll through them and therefore make the road drier so it doesn't slip. 
Um, and GM says, yes, and those super speedy tires splash and soak all the poor pedestrians on the road. I think that's a gross generalization, GM. Um, but I suppose if, you're, if your comment is sort of implying um, to be nice to pedestrians, I'm all for that. Padre Quinlan um, said, fascinating item, especially about the geckos. Yeah, Laurie was big into geckos because they're super sticky. Uh, and he says, I'll be adding that book to my Christmas list. And that bit about resisting forces in zero gravity has my head wrecked. Yeah, she was saying that, you know, in zero gravity, you don't have anything to push against. So, like, it's tricky to, like, drill something because if you try to drill it, it would just it push the way. You need something to push back against so that you can push the drill in, for example. Yeah, I like that. It was like, it reminded me of the kind of, all of the stupid ways if you were you or I were put into space that we would like accidentally kill ourselves yeah. like you go to drill something and, it's, and it, there's no resistance against it so you just like go yeah. drilling towards the sun <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had a really interesting um, chat about deep fakes um, and Shaggy says the profile images of some of the news talk presenters you then see them on the pro- news talk video clips and they look like a totally different person not going to mention them by name but if you take just a quick glance I see. So you say, um, I guarantee they are not deep fakes. Uh, although certainly, when a static photograph is taken, the best possible version of that presenter is 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 preserved in time. A video, obviously, you can't mask your flaws as much. Um, and I, I would include myself in that, but I haven't been in many YouTube news talk videos. So I hope people don't feel like I'm talking about the meta turn. Yeah, no, you're no, you're you're infinitely better looking in real life, Jonathan. Obviously, and thank you, Aidan. But thank you for pointing that out so I didn't have to, Aidan. Um, that's it from us in this week's broadcast. Uh, thanks to Aidan McKelvey, uh, Simon Keane, Garrett Mahal, JJ Clark and Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday. And as I say, we're going to be playing you that um, piece we did on DARPA research. If you're interested in what you heard from Naomi, it's a really fascinating conversation to be heard on, on Tuesday's pod. And we'll be back then the next week with more Future Proof in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. At AJ Products, we offer workplace solutions for office, school, warehouse and environment. But at AJ, we do things differently. Our approach to quality and innovation means we design and make many of our own products, giving a more unique and personal service to our customers. Like our modular standing desks, all delivered and installed. And our Lancaster office chairs, made with sustainable fabric from recycled plastic. Visit ajproducts.ie or call 01 28 11 700.